Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Let's roll, you freaking Knock On freaks. Uh, that... That introductory is brought to you by all of the Instagram Knock On Nation that's watching live right now. We took a vote, and I said, what do you want? What intro do you want? And it was pretty much unanimous at the beginning that they wanted Let's Roll. So we're rolling. Another Knock On Podcast, Knock On Podcast number 151. That's a pretty big threshold right there to be 151. If I was Rogan, I would be like, 1501 with the amount of time that I've been podcasting but um, I just said thanks gave a high five to all the live viewers because um, we actually passed 5 million downloads for the podcast which is I think pretty good Um, I don't know maybe it's good maybe it's not Um, there's a couple things I've kind of felt a little bit weird about I guess talking numbers for podcasts is one of them. I I just felt weird right now talking about that. And then um, I've felt a little bit weird lately. I've kind of, in my social media, I've given some old dud stories and given a few little, um, I don't know, kind of given some motivation, but also talked some about things that I've accomplished in the past, which is honestly a little bit weird uh to me i've don't really talk about accomplishments much just because they're kind of parts of the past um and i always felt like um, a saying that i've had for myself i don't know if this is an official saying but it's a saying that i've had for myself maybe it could be a saying maybe it can be a motivational poster but i always thought that humility was the most deadly arrow in my quiver i really like having um I like surprising people with, I guess, what I've done in the past. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully some of these things I've been posting lately have been motivation to you and help you improve your archery. That's what I want. Um, I've got several questions. I'm going to run through some questions here that were in my social media feeds. Um, I do monitor those. Um, So... If you post something on there, I'm not going to guarantee you that I'll answer it, but I definitely uh, try my best to hit the ones that are valuable and the ones that I haven't answered a million times. So there's uh, a few things. One, I've got a ton of questions about the new Sherlock site. When is the Sherlock site coming? Because it's almost been, I think, 10 months or maybe nine months since uh, Levi and I were at the Faradine factory and pretty much put the first thoughts on a board um, about what would be the perfect site for him and I if we could combine everything into one site. So we pretty much made a wish list. Um, This wish list went out and a lot of the things that were done, there were prices, um, there were bids that went out to do things a certain way. We pretty much said, well, what's our like, what's our limitations? 
and they said the well first we don't want you to have any limitations tell us exactly what you want and we're going to try to see what we can make it for and if it fits within a budget that people can afford then we're going to go that way and we're going to be diligent about trying to find some of those um, some of the things that we asked for um, some of the ter certain types of materials that we asked for within the site uh, we knew were pretty expensive <laughs> Um, but they said, you know, we've got a lot of sourcing. We'll still try. So fast forward a few months, they came back with these are the things that we're going to be able to do. These are the things that we can't really meet, you know, necessarily the quotas for on an initial start to get that type of material. So we kind of changed a few things. Then we saw a pretty much um, a a printed version of the site extension and frame and also the scope it was pretty much printed plastic which is kind of one of the processes of uh, manufacturing now and production and prototyping uh, rapid prototyping really is what it is um, so we saw that and made a few corrections uh, at that time to lengths different lengths different sizes of buttons or movability parts and they went back to the drawing board, started on it again. Then it got to summertime. The same people that work for Faradine uh, also do all of the Rage designs too. So uh, they had to get the Rage stuff done in order to have the new Rage stuff um, on. So uh, the Sherlock site got put on the back burner. So now uh, the new Rage stuff, which you'll see, I think, in a week, um, which is pretty cool, uh, will be coming out. And uh, they're going again on the site. I'm supposed to – they told me that I would have a workable actual – well, I saw, all the, I saw all the machined parts. They sent me a picture saying, we've got parts all machined. We're getting ready to put some stuff together. And uh, Levi and I both will get some sites and start putting them through the tests. Um, and then once we're happy, then we'll get rocking. So one of the things for me, um, I'm a big believer in um, vibration tests as well as water tests. Um, like my old Sherlock's that I have, my really old ones, for example... Um, the one that I took to France, it it's almost 20 years old now. Um, the one that I took to France is actually one that Steve Gibbs made me. Uh, and the problem with it is it was also a prototype. So the bushings um, in the site itself were, were actual prototype bushings. They weren't true uh, Delrin bushings. So the problem is they start to swell with water, um, which is a couple things that you have to really pay attention to when you're building sites or any type of micro-adjust pieces is swelling within those micro-adjust units, especially when you're needing to move your site on the fly. Um, so mine there got absolutely saturated and soaked. Uh, and then by the second day, it did swell and uh, swell up a little bit. So I was constantly having to kind of keep my fire by the or my bow by the fire, and that's a fine line too because you don't want to you don't want to heat your strings up. You know, taking them from super hot to super cold isn't good either. So 
I was trying to uh, do my best. My sight could move. It just wasn't moving as fast as what I normally would like. So, uh, yeah, I got that part figured out. And on these, these prototypes, we need to make sure that they're actual production bushings and not like prototype parts because one of the things that I really want to make sure um, is functioning properly is taking my sight, soaking it in some water, and then taking it off and going out and going right to the range with it. Um, I want to make sure 100% that that works that way. So sometimes waiting that extra time for those types of parts is a pain in the butt because obviously all of you out there are saying, you know, when the heck is this site coming out? I know that you probably wanted it for indoor season. You're probably wanting it for 3D season, but um, it's out of my control and out of Levi's control, and it is what it is. So, but it is still a go as far as we're being told. Um, it's just a slow go. Um, next question is going to be um, I've gotten a lot of questions lately for people setting up the Elevate Rest. I know the Elevate Rests are back ordered right now. Um, we sold out once again, so um, we're getting more made, um, new packaging too. Um, so people are asking the questions, should I use the steel cable that comes with the rest or should I use the cord that you're using in a lot of your bow builds? So in my bow builds, I'm actually using uh, cord, uh, bow rope cord. And right now, if you're if you're watching live, you'd see I'm holding up a spool. Uh, this is actually a 500 foot spool that was one of the very very first poly ropes that were made. Um, it was it was made different then, and I actually really this is what I use on a lot of people's loops when I do bow builds. But they have poly rope now um, like this that is really really good super durable burns a really good knot and if it's a bcy product um, the bcy product doesn't have a lot of rebound or or stretch to it uh, which i think is really really important and i've been using this instead of the steel cable and the reason why is because a lot of the bow builds and stuff that i do i'm working with a lot of different arrows to really decide which arrow configuration I want with that person's particular bow. So as I'm doing that, I'm having to loosen the screw that goes to the seal, the, the steel cable, and I'm having to slightly adjust the rest up or down depending on the diameter of the shaft. And then I'm having to reseat it and tighten it again. And the thing is with the steel cable, if you continually tighten it and loosen it and tighten it and loosen it, or if you have it tight and then you want to change your poundage a little bit and back your poundage out just a little bit, um, what you'll find is as soon as you back your limbs out, your arrow rest is going to have to start to come up a little bit and you're going to have to loosen that screw and take that slack out of the steel cable. And it's just not really meant to be adjusted multiple times. It's like a one-time notch it down seat it tight make sure it's cranked down tight and it works really good but i just feel like um for travelability travelability so people that are going on uh trips and they have their crap in their bow cases plus um i'm here to tell you that uh 
Rogan is not a good, uh, he's not super delicate on equipment. He's pretty much like a caveman with a bone and a rock. Um, so I've just learned by watching how he packs his case and seeing how his bow looks when it comes to me and I take it out of his case that I need something that has a little bit more uh, giveability and the synthetic D-loop material, um, it can give and it's not going to actually stretch the steel or stretch the plastic off the steel. So one thing you'll want to make sure you pay attention to if you've got any type of limb-driven rest is when you put it in your bow case and you're traveling, don't put it in your rest and then lay a bunch of weight on top of that cord that goes from your rest down to your limb because if you do that, it's going to stretch that cord. It smashes your rest harder against your shelf. Um, and depending on the type of material you have, you know, some materials, like for example, the loop material that came with the trophy takers, um, it just continually stretches and stretches and stretches. And that's a big reason why, um, with, uh, when I did my knockdown version of that rest, I changed that material because the material they send with it, it's cheaper for one, uh, which is why they include it. But it just continually stretches, and you'll notice you have to loosen that screw, pull that D-loop material tighter, and tighten it down again. Um, and you really don't want that. And if you prevent laying stuff on top of your cable, your limb-driven um, string or cable that's going down to your bottom limb, you're going to prevent that. And the other thing, too, is um, – I was trying to see if I have one here close to me. Um, the other thing, too, is – you really want to watch just when you lay it in your truck. You know, some people lay their bows in their trucks. Um, I've watched people lay their bows a ton of different ways. Honestly, get in the habit of taking your bow, top cam, going down to the floor. If you're in the front seat, if you're riding passenger front seat, top cam down to the floor, string towards the glove box. Okay, that's a good way to do it because people that put their bows in the other way, what happens is, especially if you have arrows that are pointing down, you can bend knocks if you hit bumps and your knocks are jamming into the floor. You can slightly bend your knock or crack your knock. Um, the other thing you can do if you're shooting a mechanical head is you can jam that head up into the quiver and actually partly deploy the head. Uh, because you're jamming on the bottom of your quiver. So you really need to get in the habit of top cam down to the ground and you know turn your riser in and let the seat sit just below your grip and your arrows are free and clear. You don't want to have pressure on them and you don't want to have pressure on that cable as well. So um, don't send D-loop material with the rest, but it's easy enough to... To buy and the other thing too is um, a lot of times on my hunting bows I'll actually take D-loop material and I'll take an extra couple feet of it and I'll wrap it around the riser and tie it on there um, and that's really really good for it's really good for if you need string when you're packing something out tying something to your pack if for some reason you get somewhere and you cut uh, your your rest cord, you can just grab a new one, put it on, or something that you break a D-loop, uh, you pretty much have that material with you. Um, I think I did a tech tip. 
think I did a tech tip one time about this, just taking a few, I'm showing people here on the live feed, taking a few feet of D-loop material, wrapping it nicely around your riser, and then you've got it there. So um, that stuff's really important um, and easy, really easy maintenance that's going to help you prevent any accidents in the field too. Um, or problems. Today on the Instagram, I posted um, a little post about just having basic knowledge in archery and how it can help you um, in a lot of different things. And that if you learn how to work on your own gear, you know, that knowledge never really leaves. Um, you know, that's the important thing about learning how to work on your own stuff. You're not at the mercy of an archery shop or finding an archery shop. Um, and the example I gave was um, when Joe and I were out in Lanai, the very first day we went out, we were sighting in our bow and practicing with our bow. And as we were practicing and sighting in, which is actually another post that I'd made, um, we saw some axis. We saw some axis uh, several hundred yards out. So I had my actual hunting bow. I got low. I had shorts on. Uh, but I had a camo top, I think, and had my release pouch and my face paint and my release pouch. So I just pretty much stayed low and didn't expose my legs. And I actually snuck in and I was the one that got the shot. Um, Joe, on the other hand, was trying to do his stock while holding his arrows that had his broadheads on there because he didn't bring his quiver. It was still back at the hotel. So somewhere in the midst of him crawling around he ended up nicking his cable with his broadhead and there were two strands holding his cable together so we ended up having to um, and this was another thing uh, i've talked about this when you buy a set of new strings and cables always take your factory set put them in a baggie and keep them with you either in your hunting backpack or your travel bow case because here we are in the middle of nowhere and <laughs> Right now, uh, my buddy Torsten's watching, and yeah, he did the exact same thing at turkey camp this last year, so he knows exactly what that's like. Um, but luckily, there was a Hoyt dealer on the main island, and um, we were able to FedEx a cable over for the next day, and uh, Joe drank cat ladies until, until his cable got there, and then... We literally waited for the FedEx driver to pull up, and I had um, to build his bow again uh, with no bow press. So we kind of did some makeshift uh, rigging and got it to happen. Uh, so, yeah, that's that was that. So I think basic knowledge is important for everybody to have. Small things like... You know, getting getting your release aid and watching the video that I put out on how to set the tension on your release aid, how to set trigger travel, how to move the trigger, how to hold it in your hand, um, getting that arrow rest, watching the YouTube video I have on how to install the Elevate arrow rest. Um, it's not that hard if you follow the step-by-step -step. a lot of you bought x-press bow presses you followed some of my bow builds several of my friends 
who have never even had archery experience have built their own bows and done almost as good of a job as a lot of archery shops that I know um, just by watching the video and playing it, hitting pause, rewinding it. Um, no different than most of us do now. You can learn by watching. And that's a really, really important thing to have because believe me, I've been on a lot of trips where people have messed up their equipment and someone in camp has to have at least enough knowledge to do it. Otherwise, depending on what type of hunt it is, you may have to travel hours to find a dealership. Um, it's funny, I had someone send a Elevate Aerorest back and he sent it back and uh, in there said, uh, there was a note that said, took this to my local archery shop. Um, he told me that this thing is not as good as what he sells and it doesn't work properly and that I needed to return it. And so I take it out and literally the arrow rests look like someone had fumbled with this thing uh, that had no idea what they were doing. And, you know, center shot was off, spring was completely going the wrong direction, tension was totally changed. Um, he never adjusted the actual main head of the whale tail. He just adjusted the micro adjust all the way over for this person's type of bow. And to me, it was... It was disappointing because I knew that this guy's local archery shop literally got a guy that came in, got an air, an arrow rest, and could not put an arrow rest on. And if these arch, some of these archery shops, if your local guy, if all he can do is throw a whisker biscuit on there and get it to shoot a hole through paper and send you out the door, or all they can do is shoot one one type of rest or put one sight on then that's a problem you know this is this is when i would encourage you to start doing things i mean i've never seen the broadheads that i showed some of the people here earlier on the live feed uh it was a new broadhead i won't even mention the name because i'm not gonna it won't be good for them if i do um but they have to be kind of put together. I mean, I could just look at the box and figure that part out because you've done it enough times where you can problem solve, figure those things out. And, you know, you learning how to do some of this stuff at your, at your own home and buying some of the stuff and challenging yourself to do it um, is going to be important. And if you have your main bow that's shooting really good, but you have an old bow, you know, I would just encourage you to say, okay, take your old bow and take everything off your old bow that you're not using anymore and follow one of my bow builds. Follow it step by step. You can Google or you can go on YouTube and type in Knocked and Ready to Rock, uh, John Dudley, and you can see a bow build start to finish. I've done several on different live feeds within the YouTube channel. You'll be able to see a lot of it. Um, but take an old bow and put that thing back together and see how you do with it um, because these are they're simple things and you know there's some things like for example you know some of the newer cams that are out there like you know the matthews cams you know they're a little bit more complicated having to take the axles out and things like that in order to you know and remove the whole cam to do the string cable change um, versus you know or even even like on the new Hoyt systems, you know, having a new split cable system, 
you know, for some Hoyt dealers, they're looking at this like, oh my goodness, what is that? Because they've never seen it before. You know, just do it a few times and you'll figure it out. I mean, honestly, you'll do it. Um, I've got a couple different videos that I'm working on. Uh, one is going to be a riser change out, a riser swap, um, which will be coming pretty soon. I think it'll help some of the Hoyt people out there. Um, but yeah, the arrow rest setup and things like that. These are things that all of you can do at home. Going to be easy for you to do and something I would encourage um, all of you out there to do. Uh, let's see, there's another question I saw, but I already forgot what it was. There was a question that I saw on the live feed that was good. Um, but I'm just going to go back through. There was a question that I saw um, today from... Um, someone, I think it was today, might have been yesterday, but pretty much he was talking about, let's see here, well, he was talking about that he got a brand new silverback, and when he first starts to shoot, it seems like it works just fine, but then the longer he shoots, it gets really, really difficult, um, for him to shoot, and he's like wondering what's wrong with it, and once again, this is, you know, I talk about this a lot. Um, and actually, for those of you listening, I know that silverbacks um, are getting very limited, uh, I guess, and while I'm on that subject. Noctuits, they were supposed to be here this week. Carter actually built some of their releases for the ATA show ahead of the Noctuits. So Noctuits are supposed to be shipping from Carter Um today and tomorrow uh the balance of the of the big order that we had um which pretty much puts them here right slap in the middle of us being at the ata show so we may not load them on while we're at the ata show um but end of next week uh and beginning of the week after is when that um last winter batch is going to be uh going on and available and I can, all I can do is encourage you to go to the Knock on Archery website, click on the Knock to it, or anytime there's an out-of-stock product, just check, click that little notify me box, put your email in, and submit it. Because what happens is we've got a really cool system that shoots you a, shoots you a private email as soon as um, that product is back in stock. Um, so let's see here. Okay, yeah, this was a question. It was from, um, well, it was from Joey Leaves, Leaves Q123, I guess. Um, just saying I got a silverback. I'm having some trouble. It feels like when I first start shooting with it, I'm doing great. But the longer I shoot, the worse it gets. Um, I went from shooting 300s with my wrist strap to a 275 with the silverback. Any help would be great. So, yeah, that's... Um, that thing is, it could be several things. One, it could be identifying the fact that as you get later in the round and as you start to break down, um, you're starting to lose some strength. And a lot of times if you're a wrist strap shooter, that's going to be the time where you're most likely to start punching the trigger too. As you fatigue and as your ability to hold lessens, you're going to start wanting to punch the trigger. Um, also, you know, if you're if you have a mental block with your score and you get to the point where you're starting to worry about, okay, I need three more perfect arrows. I got six more perfect arrows. You start to do that and your mindset starts to switch over to 
holding and being still and not missing more than shot execution. And this is one of the very, very valuable things for you to learn. And it's really what separates uh, the best archers from the mediocre archers. Um, the best archers in the world are the ones that are able to function the same start to finish. And that's a, the number of people within that group is very small because, you know, this is hard work. And I can tell you the first time I shot a tension activated release, it was the same thing. It took me probably close to a day before I could even fire it without feeling super stressed out and uncomfortable. Um, and it took me a lot longer to be able to operate a perfect shot for an entire round. And that was one of my biggest goals um, as I progressed through uh, the professional ranks was how many good shots can I make? How many perfect shots can I make today? It wasn't about score. It was about numbers of good shots. And over the course of time, you start to build up on that. So what I would challenge you with is instead of looking at your score, you know, realize, and I'm not sure what type of 300 you're shooting, whether it's a five spot or whether it's on a Vegas face, um, but, you know, your front shoulder breaking down and starting to collapse, um, that's strength. That's going to totally be focused on strength. I posted some of my practice rounds last week because I wanted some of you to watch that. Um, as I started to weaken, I started to lean back a little bit more, started to kind of lay into my shot, and I knew I was breaking down. So it got to the point where after having a few arrows that were almost out, um, I had to really focus on maintaining my posture and standing up straight and keeping my torso tight and keeping myself taunt and then really focus on raising that bow keeping that front shoulder down and then drawing back with proper posture and maintaining my lines in my front arm and in my rear arm keeping my elbow up keeping my posture high so i could pull through that shot properly rather than collapsing down and the rear elbow coming lower and me starting to, to lose that parallel line that you really need to have in the rear elbow. So you really got to work on those. I think in the last podcast, um, I had a question from someone that was asking, why can they shoot the silverback really good up close, but then when they go to a further distance, they don't group as well? It's the exact same thing. This is really a mental breakdown based on your body's comfort zone and what it's seeing in the sight picture. You know, you're depending on the size of your spot or how you're holding at a close distance, your body's seeing some movement, but it's okay with it, or your your mind is seeing the movement, but it's okay with the movement. So you can continue to pull through the shot and you're actually focused on that release hand and coming through with the release hand. You're focused on things that are behind the line, behind the shooting line, what's really in the back part. But then as soon as you start to stretch out and you've got more sight movement, that, that pin's starting to move around or you know bobble down, 
move around, as soon as that starts to happen, then you start to focus on tightening up, collapsing a little bit, and trying to stabilize things and tighten your groups by holding stiller. The problem is when you're holding and trying to shoot a tension-activated release that's really geared around continual pressure, um, it's two opposing parts. And believe me, if you can incorporate those techniques and those types of shot execution that the Silverback teaches, if you can incorporate that into any other release, um, then I think you're going to be amazed at the difference um, of how well that how well that goes. Um, let's see here. Just looking uh, at a few questions. Um, let's see. I'm shooting this is from BKville saying I'm shooting a carbon defiant 31 at 2970. Um, I want to get some fatter diameter arrows for 3D. What should be my process in doing it? this? Which arrows do you recommend? Um, not sure if the shorter axle-to-axle -axle length would be an issue with tuning. So the axle-to-axle -axle length isn't going to be any different in tuning as compared to the accuracy you're going to have with your hunting bow. So... I guess with that, I would ask you what really is your true application. If you're wanting to shoot it for 3D, you know, focus on what types of 3D courses that you're going to shoot. Because here's the deal: there's a lot of 3D courses now, a lot of classes. It's not like back when I shot, there were men's pro, women's pro, senior pro, and uh, finger class. Other than that, there was semi-pro men semi-pro women and then you had open a open b and that was it now there's known distance this bow hunter class 40 or less range find there's so many different classes if you're going to a course that's going to allow you to use a range finder and allow you to to not have to sit there and judge and really shoot at unknown distances, then you can pretty much take out the importance of speed and really focus on what's most accurate. And in that case, I would actually urge you, if you're shooting 3D where you're able to actually shoot in a class and use your rangefinder, instead of focusing on an arrow that's better for 3D, Focus on finding a better hunting arrow that's going to make your hunting bow 3D accurate. And that's really what I look for. And when I do my custom builds, I have a clean slate of what that's going to be. There's times where I've shot ACCs. There's times where I've shot 2315s. There's times where I've shot um, the Deep Six Injections. There's also a lot of times now where I shoot an Axis or an FMJ or even now the 6mm Axis. So, you know, I'm pretty confident. I gave my Frankenbow to um, Matt Newton, who is one of the bidders, and his bow, his new bow is, hasn't come in yet because um, that particular cam size isn't ready yet from the Hoyt factory. So I gave him my original Frankenbow and... He's commented several times at how accurate that bow is. And that really comes down to a lot of really 
starting with one arrow and trying a lot of options within that one arrow to see what options make that one arrow be the best. And once I knew what that was, then I could easily go to a bucket and try some different arrows. So I really like to try to see how accurate I can make one arrow. And for me, um, if you're shooting 3D, just remember 3D is, at least for me, is practice for hunting. And if you're a hunting guy that's gonna start shooting some 3D, unless you're planning on going on the tour where you're gonna be shooting in the open class, I would just say try some different fletch configurations or even try taking the arrow that you have and boosting your front point weight um, and see how that helps. The other thing too is even shooting target at a little bit lower poundage um, so that you can get in more reps and more practice, uh, which is important. Um, I could easily go and shoot a three, um, shoot a 70 pound bow for 3d. Um, personally, I've always shot in the low sixties all the way through my competition. Um, I think I shot a 67 pound bow for 3d one time. It was at an IBO. Um, but other than that, I've always shot lower poundages and it's because I want to be able to practice and really focus on technique and proper form and also be able to get higher numbers of reps in. So trying different fletch configurations, trying different point weights, and then also just trying different poundages within that bow you have, that's going to teach you um, some really, really important things. For those of you watching, uh, my time's up. I've got to shut down. I'll come right back um, and jump into some more questions. So stay tuned. Uh, stay there, everybody. All right. So while that's happening, um, I'm going to get into another question here. And this is from Vintage83. Um, pretty much saying, hey, Dud, could you explain again how to measure for peep height um, I've know you you've explained it before and I can't remember which podcast it was in so with peep height there's once you have a bow that's shooting really really good and you have a bow that you like um, the peep height number that you need to know is a measurement that you actually should take at full draw and you'll draw your bow back and you'll anchor and you know you'll touch the tip of your nose to the string and you'll be looking dead through the center of your peep height your peep and then what you want to do is take a measuring tape or a ruler and literally hang it straight down from the peep sight hanging straight down to the arrow shaft it's almost like if you were holding a plumb bob okay you don't want to measure down the string to the knock what you want to measure is from the center of the peep straight down in a straight line down to the center of the arrow shaft. And that number right there is pretty much telling you the distance between your anchor point and where the center of your eyeball is. And that distance will be the same regardless at full draw. It'll be the same regardless of what axle to axle length you shoot. 
And this is important because with uh, some bows, like the brand new, um, like the brand new Matthews, the brand new Matthews is, um, it's a, it's a pretty short bow. It's 28 inches axle to axle. So even though the bow feels really good to shoot, um, the problem for a taller person like me is when you're at rest, that peep has to be very high in the string because as you draw it back, the string angle gets more sharp so it pinches down to a, a smaller angle or smaller triangle as it comes all the way back to your jaw length so because of that if you know your distance for example for me i'm right at about 3.9 inches um, just shy of four inches from um, from the center of my arrow shaft straight up to the center of the peep um, so that position there um, is where I am regardless. If I'm shooting um, one of my target bows, like for example, uh, my Prevail 40 that I've been shooting indoors, it's a 40 inch axle to axle bow. The string angle is much bigger. So the peep sits lower in the string when the string is at rest um, versus my hunting bows, it's you know almost a half inch higher um, because of that angle as it comes back. Now with that new Matthews, my peep is almost a half inch higher than it is with, um, with my Redworks, with my RX-1. So um, that peep gets pretty dang high in the string and um, it gets really, really close to you know, the speed knock. So uh, that's one of the things that you definitely have to learn is proper peep measurement. So always measure at full draw. If you have a bow that fits you really good, if you have a bow that's your favorite ever, it's the perfect one to get this measurement. Draw back, anchor, tip of the nose of the string, take a tape measure, measure from the center of the peep straight down to the center of the arrow shaft. And then once you know that measurement, you'll actually be able to get a new bow Put it on a drawboard, put an arrow on it, draw it back, and you can literally take your tape measure, move your tape measure, you know, set it to whatever your measurement is, four inches to the center of the shaft. You can hold that tape measure on the center of the shaft, and you can move it up and down that shaft while the tape measure is vertical until it hits the perfect place in the string. To where that four inch mark from the center of your shaft hits the center of your string and then go ahead and put a little mark right there and you can take your bow and uh, you'll be able to put a peep in there and it'll be totally set totally ready to ready to go um, let's see here uh, da, 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 da. Um, uh, another question here is well, I guess it was a comment. Uh, first out M, he's saying, I see Joe Rogan hasn't jumped on the RX-1 bandwagon. This is based on a post that I made uh, with from from this summer, so he didn't have his RX-1. He actually does have one now. He's got um, one that I built for him, and uh, he's actually probably going to have a, a second one. Um, let's see here. There's a pretty, could be a good question. I haven't read it yet, but... 
Um, NWJ Hawker is saying technical question. I found the balls to enter my first competition and headed to Reading in May, which is, in my opinion, the best, uh, definitely the best archery tournament going. Um, for hunters, for sure. For hunters and target archers, that's a great one. Um, we'll take my hunting bow with some tweaks to challenge myself, but I have a question. Okay, here we go again, same subject. Um, I shoot a 5mm FMJ three inch veins um, but experimenting with a four millimeter with two and a quarter veins um, I put on a 95 grain outsert um, which you informed us of and they're flying very well um, is a 17% FOC too high um, let's see lastly will I want that thinner setup for the redding uh, versus the five millimeter with the bigger veins so I would say one don't be afraid to put that shorter vein on um, on that five millimeter FMJ don't be afraid of that you can put like a Pro Max would be a really good vein to shoot on there or a PM 2.0 and you know if you're shooting 100 grain points try to just bump up to like a 125 screw in point um, I haven't ever got real freaky with my FOC for my target setups um, I've never really seen a need to. Definitely at those longer distances, a three-inch vein. Um, depending on how the wind is coming through the canyon on some of those, like the Bigfoot shot at 101, um, that three-inch vein, you could definitely need to understand drift a little bit more than on the others. Um, however, you got to look at it a couple ways. If you're wanting to challenge yourself, then maybe learning how your actual hunting vein does in those setups would be a very good learning experience for you because you're really not going to learn or challenge yourself from a hunting point of view if you're completely going there with a different piece of equipment so that's why even in the last question i had um you know i tell people if you're a hunter and you're shooting some target archery is fun learn your equipment learn your setup um i've really debated going to redding and shooting it with my hunting bow the problem is if i go um you know i have to shoot in the pro class uh just because that's you know pretty much how i'm ca categorized so as much as i would want to go there and just take my hunting bow uh you know, which is what I'd like to do, and which a lot of the Hoyt employees, when they shoot, they just take their hunting bow. And that sounds like a lot more fun. Um, and that actually is what I'll probably do at the Total Archery Challenge um, in Salt Lake City. I'll be going there with some, uh, I don't know if I should say lucky, but I'm going there with some Cabela's, uh, Cabela's Black Signature Card members. Uh, that'll be one of the experiences you'll be able to cash in on. Uh, next Friday, I have my lunch with Cabela's to officially uh, seal this deal. And I assume they'll they'll advertise it after that. But I'm going to do um, a private tour of Easton with lessons. And then I'm actually going to step back onto an archery range just to shoot with the card members 
um, to teach them how to shoot uh, on angles and hills and all that stuff. So I'm, I actually don't have any affiliation with Cabela's. They just called and asked if I would do it. So evidently someone requested it. So that should be pretty cool. And I'll probably get Andy to shoot that with me too. So if you do bid on that, I'm going to, well, I'm just going to officially make Andy do it. So I'll have Andy there with me. That way you'll get some good laughs and probably um, cocktails following following the day's activities. Let's see here. Um, wow, so many, so many uh, people here. TJ Brenny is saying, I'm looking to start shooting some 3D competitions this summer. Nothing super big, but want to push myself to get better um, and eventually shoot some bigger 3D events. I'm going to use my hunting bow to start. Good for you. Um, shooting a Matthews Triax, um, 26 and a half inches of 66 pounds uh, with VAPs. What would you recommend for training and what to focus on for my first 3D event? So, um, yeah, that's, and that's a great question. And I'm just going to tell you right now, um, I would say first and foremost, decide whether or not you're wanting to shoot the marked or the unmarked distance. That's a huge thing because if you're shooting marked distance, then you're really not having to focus on learning how to judge. I think it's important that you challenge yourself while you're practicing 3D to actually range or guess first, then range to see how accurate you were because you will slowly start to calibrate your mind. Sometimes I get really lazy, uh, just especially practicing the yard. I'll set up a 3D, walk back, range it. I don't even look at it anymore. And there's been times where I've tried to just guess an animal out of the blue and I'm just completely off versus when I used to shoot 3D professionally, I always ranged as much or more than I actually shot because knowing the distance is really the name of the game. But now that they have known distance courses, this whole game has changed. Now it is strictly target archery aiming at a 3D uh, object. So from there, what you have to learn is what equipment is best for the area that you're going in. Obviously, <laughs> if you're going to an event like Reading, where you're going to have 101 yard shots, 88 yard shots. Um, you're going to be shooting through some canyons. You've got some wind drift. Now you really need to focus on finding an arrow that groups as best as possible, but also has minimal wind drift, or you have to practice in those elements so that you can learn how to compensate for those types of elements. Um, the other thing too is um, and actually, this was one thing that, um, you know, I I kind of broke one of my own rules. When I went to France, typically, one, I know my equipment. I did not realize that the rangefinder I took, um, when it comes to angle compensation, it actually maxes out and it only compensates to a certain degree, which I think was 30 degrees. So once I had to make my shot at well below 30 degrees, the rangefinder just deducted a set amount and then that was it and it stopped. So when I made my shot, 
Now the animal was move. The animal heard us coming because how crunchy the snow was. When I made my shot, he was darting out of the way already. But my arrow was probably about 12 inches high, and I was sitting there thinking. You know, I started to look back at the footage, and I'm like, man, that was a good shot for that to be high. You know, I was kind of worrying about why I was so high. So I started looking at it and I sat there and, and talked with Andy because the, the chamois actually went off the back of that, uh, the back of that ridge and he actually came up the next canyon. And we were just sitting there kind of waiting for him to settle down. We were going to hope he would bed again. And then I was going to try to see if we could get Andy a shot. So while we're sitting there, I'm sitting there saying like, what de- how, what degree do you think that is? You know, what do you think that is? And we started talking about the angle, and then I started looking at him like, okay, well, you know, I turned my compensator off the rangefinder, and I ranged it, and I'm like, well, what the hell? That's that's an 18 yard cut, and it my rangefinder told me that I only needed 12, so I was sitting there thinking why is this math not adding up and it ba- it was basically because the rangefinder once it gets to 30 degrees doesn't continually calculate the cut so i would have if i would have known my equipment well enough i would have known to actually have an inclinometer on the side of my rangefinder along with my cut chart which is normally what i do on serious field archery ranges if it's allowed Um, especially during practice and I would have mathematically double checked and thought okay well shit this thing's way off for what my cut is and I would have trusted my inclinometer and my graph way more than I would have trusted the calibration of the laser Um, so learning your equipment is going to be key Um, and then also if you do have to learn to judge distance then spend as much time with that as possible. And what I would recommend if you have to learn distance is try to find a training partner. And one thing that I did was I always took turns with my training partner, which actually I didn't have a lot. Um, I did have a few that would come by. Um, And normally what I would do, especially if someone came and trained with me, is, um, and I did this this summer, Um, I had a couple uh, guys that were working with me through the summer and were interning here. So what I would tell them is, you know, hey, go out. Can you just move my targets for me and move the targets around? Because you don't want to get complacent with, with judging and practicing and estimating distance from the same start points all the time. So by just moving your targets, you know, at least every week, um, or even setting them up in a fashion where you can shoot them from the other direction um, is going to be really key. Now, if you don't have to worry about judging distance, make sure your bow is shooting as good as possible. And just focus on execution and also focus on learning the targets and where the scoring is. That's a big part of 3D is learning the targets. And I remember when I first started... I think the 3D ranges had 10 targets. Um, you know, there was 10 main McKenzie targets. 
But then they switched and they started to add in some other targets. And those first shoots, several of those new targets ate the pro archer's lunch because they weren't used to size and judging distance based on size or how well they could see. And then also, you know, like, for example, we always had a turkey that was a Jake first. Then when they brought the strutting turkey in, people started aiming in the same relative spot as what they do on the Jake, but it's in a different location. Um, Same thing was true for an alert deer versus the first uh, HD deer. The kill rings or the 12 rings were slightly different. So learning those rings and where to hold is critical. So from there, I would really urge you to try to find a course that has similar targets or call the course and say, what kind of targets are you putting out? And if they say, we're going to be using Reinhardt's, you know, go off and find a Reinhardt 100 that's close to you and go out and shoot some of those and really pay attention on some of those targets when you walk up because that's a fun shoot and be like, oh crap, on this polar bear, I would expect the 10 ring to be right in the center of the core, but it's actually low within the core. Make some notes of that because there's oftentimes like on a white target where if you're trying to find the scoring ring with your rangefinder, you're actually not going to be able to see that scoring ring very clear. So that type of intel is going to be uh, imperative to you. So um, let's see. Uh, someone's asking the question, uh, can the Rage Hypodermic Broadheads fit on the 5mm arrows? So they can fit either a standard insert or the deep six. You just have to buy um, either one of those. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to scrub through some of these. Uh, scrub through a few of these questions that are coming through right now. Um, let's see. <laughs> do One of the questions was, do I think we're going to have enough uh, two smooth releases uh, to handle. I hope so. I debated, I may take a survey on this. Um, I may take a survey. I ordered a lot. You got to remember, um, Carter doesn't want to make these. Um, for example, I'm gonna get in trouble for show. I'll show you this side. So I made some, I made some Noctuits for me. I'll show people you can watch. I made some half calves. <laughs> These are for me. And the only reason I did that is because every time I go somewhere, people take my Noctuits. So I figured this way I'll always know which one's mine. Um, I made mine half black, half green. Um, but Carter doesn't want to make these. Um, Carter made me order uh, five times more of the Noctuits than they had ever sold in two finger releases ever in order to make me these. And so I had to do that. And now every time I make a change in the design, I'm actually writing a check um, for a PO that allows me to do that. So, um, you know, it's, it's not fun to do it. I think I've ordered enough I debated um, putting the two smooths on and letting people do an early sign-up at least um, just so that I could kind of see how my numbers are. And if by chance I've oversold, I can at least get another 
order in and rolling right away. Um, they, the two smooths are actually uh, being anodized right now and they should be at Carter next week. And I'm kind of thinking the two smooths will be available right following the ATA show, uh, which will be perfect to be able to do a live feed, show you those, and then I'm going to do several videos and tutorials on setup, adjustment, how to shoot. Um, and then I'll probably do a few practice rounds uh, as well. Um, today is the Iowa Pro-Am is actually coming up this weekend. Um, I've got some students coming in town uh, that I've got to work with, and I'm actually um, going to be doing, a th we may do a podcast, I'm not sure. I've got uh, indoor world champion Chris Perkins uh, is probably going to stop by for a podcast too. He asked if he could swing by, so probably do a podcast with him, talk indoor archery, um, also, I think today the announcement will be made on where he's going. He left PSC, uh, and sometimes that happens with shooters. Uh, I had a conversation with him last night, and he had the same mindset as me. Um, you know, I was with the company for a long time, and then when I left and came to Hoyt, um, you know, it's a little bit weird at first. Um, luckily, I had some great friends already at Hoyt, so it made it a little bit more comforting to me. But it's always this kind of mental barrier when you don't necessarily um, want to leave the company, but things happen and you do. And then you start to say, okay, well, what's, what's really better for me? And I think it just got to the point where he needed to pick what was better for him and what was going to allow him to travel and compete more and put himself out there more so good for him for that good luck to him for that um i told him he could pick anything on a menu and i'll traeger for him so um if chris doesn't win the iowa pro-am it's because he's officially in a traeger coma which is a medical condition uh brought to you by copious amounts of meat and tastiness that swells up in your tongue and makes your eyelids heavy and your belly big and uh, salivation also happens so that's going to be coming up uh, let's see here looking at one more question oh this is actually a good one I think um, hey, Dud, looking at surgery soon on my right shoulder. Going to try and go to Redding uh, with a mouth tab. Any tips? Best clearance for low poundage mouth tab shooting. That's really tough. Um, actually, I would encourage you to send a message out to Jeff Fabry. Um, I actually did not shoot a mouth tab like a lot of the mouth tab shooters do. A lot of the mouth tab shooters actually put their mouth tab above the arrow so that their peep height um, can be higher so that they can get some of those longer shots. Uh, Jeff Favory would definitely be the one to ask because he's shot reading before, so he could probably tell you what type of poundage and arrow setup that you would need. Um, he's a stud, so contact Jeff. I shot my mouth tab right directly behind the arrow, which meant um, just based on where you're biting, 
um, because normally you're anchoring under your jaw. If you're biting a mouth tab, that would almost be like you anchoring directly on the side of your face. So your peep is very low in the string. So I could actually only shoot 50 yards when I shot my mouth tab. And I also had to shoot a very light arrow. Uh, was mainly just focused on trying to get some distance. Uh, so talk with Jeff about that. Um, I'm trying to think. I did have some questions. Uh, my buddy Zach, um, who's the head engineer now at Hoyt, um, just got a labrum repair. Um, I'm thinking about having uh, Dr. Roddy McGee back on the podcast because to talk to people, there's a lot of people, I think, now that are recognizing shoulder injuries and they're wanting to make some, um, they're wanting to know how to rehab the shoulder injuries. So my advice is this, with the shoulder surgery, especially rotator cuff and labrum repairs, um, what's most important and what I appreciate the most, and actually, I honestly, even with what I went through, I wish I would have had both shoulders done. <laughs> um, and I say that, I don't, I, I know my right shoulder didn't need it, but now that I'm, now that I've had this left one fixed and I followed the exact protocol that my doctor uh, put me through and he told me it was going to be slow it was going to be rigorous do not shoot he told me he was he literally interviewed me and made me promise that I would not shoot with my left arm or try to draw a bow with my left arm until he told me it was okay and he told me to plan on six months and it he did turn me loose at the six month mark um, but the things that were most important to me weren't necessarily the strength part. I mean, I did that and it came slow. But what was most important to me and what I appreciate the most now is the flexibility and the stretching exercises. The very first one that I did, and it was an absolute killer, was literally you would sit down to where your arm would be on a table and you would set your hand on a towel on top of your countertop and you would literally just slide your arm forward to try to start to stretch out that shoulder. And that was the hardest thing is learning because at first you just don't have any range of motion. And then you start to get to where you're doing that same motion, but on a wall. You're up against a wall, you're putting your hand on the wall, and you're sliding that towel straight up. And when you first do it, and your shoulder is all, everything in there is sewn together so tight, that motion is very, very hard. But I just focused on that motion, and then also one of the motions was laying on my back, and have holding having my elbow at a 90 degree my elbow would be on the ground my arm would be at 90 degree holding a can of soup and allowing the weight to rotate my arm back to where the weight of that soup would come flat to the carpet and that range of motion both directions was crazy and then your ability to come around your back 
was crazy as well. Now my left side, since I focused on those, what I regret is that I didn't put equal attention to my right side because my left side is ridiculously flexible now versus my my right side. I can barely do that wall movement and I'm sure the slide I could probably do, but when it comes to rear um, flexibility, I'm super limited and I actually feel like my left shoulder is better because of the stretching and I feel like strength is super relative to flexibility and I'm to the point now where I almost want to go to a rehab person specifically just to break down my scarring in my right side and actually focus on just getting range of motion and flexibility in my right side now because my range of motion is completely different between my two sides and I actually feel like my right side is now getting to the point where I might be tearing it some because my left side is so freaking strong. My left side, for any type of press that I do with a bar, my left side is always dominating my right side. And my right side, the range of motion is much different and it really isn't as good. So focus most on the stretches. And even though they take attention away from the stretching and they put attention on starting to strengthen with the bands, my surgeon continually said stretches before and after the strength don't give up on it and he actually made me go to a clinic where they would check off if I did that and I told him I said how come everyone else is coming in here and they're gone in half the time and they said well Dr. Napola his patients they have the slowest and tedious and almost the most boring rehab because it you don't progress very fast and they said you know these other people are from different doctors you know they're trying to get them going quicker and they and I just said well what do you think and they said well honestly we've never seen his patients back and they said we definitely see the other doctors patients back a lot of times they end up re-tearing it again. So that's valuable information right there. Um, and I think a perfect way to end this podcast. So thanks everybody for the support. Um, a couple of people sent me some awesome bottles of um, adult liquid beverages for the holidays. Um, thank you to those of you who did that. And uh, yeah, make sure you go to the website. Um, got some really cool new gear um i actually i wore my knock on x-ray skull today this is still one of my favorites um but you got to check out the hats the black took us a while to get hats in here again the black stealth hat is awesome it's fitted um i'm at a seven and a quarter baseball hat i can fit in the small the the large xl fits me awesome but i could definitely i think as it wears in i could probably fit in a a, the small medium Uh, but they are fitted and then there's also a super cool 
uh, patch hat that you've got four different patches so you can change your hat all the time velcro style uh, which is going to be cool and I think our plans are to bring out some other patches down the road um, and the one thing that hat does have is it's got the brand new knock on nation emblem uh, which I haven't made a big deal about, but that emblem was originally made for the new website. And uh, for those of you out there, I am making progress with the website. Uh, I know you've heard this, so I quit talking about it, but I hope it happens soon. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, next time next time you for sure see me, it's going to be at the ATA show. I'll do some live feeds there from the booths, give you some product reviews. Uh, and all that good stuff. So thanks everybody tuning in. Another knock on podcast number 151. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.